Bible with you this morning, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. And if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, we want to make you aware of some Bibles that you're free to use that are on the middle of the aisles, on the floor, under the chairs. Flag somebody down on the end and they'd be happy to pass one your way. We've almost wound to a close this overview, big picture series on Genesis. Looking into this document that captures the explanations that the people of God have always held to for big questions in life. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is God like? What does he expect from us? We've reached a section in Genesis that gets even more specific. It gets to how God is building for himself a people through whom he's going to fulfill the promises that he makes even as early as chapter 3. Promises to crush the power of evil, to reestablish the authority of his kingdom. What we're reading is the history of a nation. And as, uh, as all of us have to do, I come to, to these texts looking at it through lenses that, have come to, that I've gotten through my own experiences, right? We all do that. And for me, what I'm thinking about when I'm reading about the founding of a nation is some of my work uh, as a graduate student, which had a lot to do with nationalism. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details of my dissertation, though you're, uh, you're welcome to read it if you want. I'd be happy to furnish you with a copy. Uh, it has to do with nationalism. And one of the, one of the things that, that scholars of nationalism are always wanting to know is, what is it that actually makes a nation? This is just a random collection of individuals. Is it, is it where they live? And if so, you know, what divides someone who lives in France from someone who lives in Germany when there's this border that's there, but it's artificial? So it can't be just geography. Is it, is, it, is it their language? Well, that certainly plays a part in it. Is it maybe... Uh, family ties, some sort of genealogical thing. Uh, well, so people have dissertations on this, and they write books and make careers trying to answer these questions about what, what creates a nation. One of the things, though, that everybody agrees on is that for a nation to form and to, to hold fast, it involves a lot of storytelling. One of the things that goes to the heart of what it is to be a people is to have a shared sense of your own history of what things define you, of what experiences shaped you into to what you are. Nations are about stories. And, of course, our own national history and our own uh, acculturation as American nationalists involves plenty of these stories, right? We're told things about George Washington. We even get stories that are often made up to make these people look great, right? So Washington goes out and cuts down a cherry tree and I forget exactly what happens, but I know that it's fictional and that it's supposed to make him look really good. I remember also this story about uh, uh, Honest Abe, right? Honest Abe Lincoln, who, who get, hikes through something like 10 miles of snow just to return a nickel to somebody who overpaid him at the store. Or it also involves expunging things from stories, right? It's not just making them up or emphasizing the good parts. It's also getting rid maybe of things that don't represent what you want to be as a people. And so when you, when you read about Thomas Jefferson, at least up until the last few decades, you read about the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence that all people are created equal. Actually, he said all men are created equal, and he had some really interesting views on women that we don't talk about a lot. He also had slaves, and now we know uh, much more about his history, things that were sort of expunged from that record. Because what you do when you tell a story about a nation is you try to build it up to hold it as a model. I can't imagine a more stark contrast to that typical way of building nationhood than Israel's story of its founding. The stories we've come to already in Abraham, but especially now today in Jacob, they are, they are far from a glowing portrait of a national hero. 
They tell of a guy whose name even means deceiver or cheater, he who cheats. They tell of all the sordid things that he does to try to get ahead in life. Ultimately, they tell all the things that we would have kept out if we were just trying to build up a people around some common identity. Why do they do that? It's not that they're after anything else, anything other than what people are always after when they tell stories about their nation. They're, they're trying to build a sense of identity here. But that's, their identity is not going to be based on the purity of their human founders. They're after some different questions. What they're trying to answer in their stories about the national founding is questions like, what can we expect from God? What's he like? And what does God expect from us? And if those are the questions being asked and answered by these stories, then you get a lot different story than you would typically find. The answers to those questions here are just as counterintuitive as the less than flattering picture of Jacob as national hero. They're they're answers that are best found, I think, by focusing in on Jacob's two dramatic encounters with God. This is a bird's-eye view of Genesis. I feel like I constantly need to be saying that again and apologizing for it. We are flying through this huge book. We're going to do Jacob in one week today. I think we can get at the heart of what he represents in this story by drilling down into the two most important accounts of his meeting with God. One is in chapter 28, where he has a vision of God at a place called, that he comes to call Bethel. The other is in chapter 32, which is where he's returning to the promised land and he meets God mysteriously at, in, in the night and has this some sort of UFC-style wrestling match with him. Those are the two stories we want to drill down on today. Uh, would you stand with me as we read from each story, beginning in verse 10 of chapter 28. This is the word of the Lord from Genesis. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord God stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely this, the Lord, is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then 
the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Now, chapter 32, beginning in verse 22. The same night he, that is Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want us to look at these two stories today as answers to the question, what can we expect from God and what does God expect from us? Those were the questions that defined Israel as a people. The first has everything to do with grace. And that's this first story in Genesis chapter 28. I think the significance of Jacob's dream here at Bethel, it really only comes through. It only makes sense if you appreciate what's happened already to him to bring him to that place. What you have to notice about, about this dream and where it happens is that he's alone and he's isolated from everything that he's known and it's all his fault. There's a backstory here. Before the boys were even born, Jacob and his twin brother Esau, Rebekah had been barren. They had prayed to the Lord for children and God had blessed them with these twins. But he had told Rebekah in a prophecy that there were two nations in her womb, even then struggling with each other, and that contrary to all cultural expectations, it would be the younger one who would rule over the older one. In the mystery of divine providence, this is because God wanted things that way, but as it played out in real time, it would be because Jacob was a scumbag. Jacob was, it was a guy who lived up to his name. He comes out of the womb with a hold on the ankle of his brother, And he was after him from then on. His name means deceiver or the one who cheats. And he was going to wear this name pretty well. Jacob, the story tells us, was a homebody. He was a mama's boy. He didn't enjoy hunting like his brother Esau did. He liked to stay in the tents. That's what the text says specifically. He loved dwelling in the tents. But what he lacked in sheer brawn he made up for with his wit, his intellect, and his just mean streak that comes out in everything that he does. He and Esau, 
were at each other's throats from the beginning. And he really gets to Esau when he first swipes his birthright. The birthright was everything in this culture. If you came out first as a boy, you got everything that your father owned. Jacob, knowing that he had missed that window by a few minutes, decides that he's got to find a way to get what's coming to him. And he gets Esau over a barrel, and Esau comes in from, from hunting, and he's starving, right? And he, he doesn't know how to cook. That's not his thing. But Jacob's got this stew that he's been making the whole time while Esau is out hunting. And he comes in thinking, claiming he's going to die. You just get the sense that this is a guy who just lives in the moment, that he just can't look past the feelings that he's got in his body at that moment. He feels like he's going to die. He asks Jacob for food and says he'll trade him anything. What good is a birthright to me if I'm going to die of starvation before I get to enjoy it? So he gives it all to Jacob. Jacob wasn't done. When their father Isaac gets sick, he's nearing death, he can't see anything, Jacob and his mother concoct this scheme to take the blessing that was ultimately going to confer that birthright from Esau. So while Esau is out trying to find his father's favorite food for something like a last meal, he, he comes to him claiming that, he is, that he's just been given some gain more quickly than normal by the hand of God and asking for the blessing and, and, and Isaac He's duped. He gives it to him. Ironically, Jacob seemed to believe in the promises of God enough to want the power that his father could pass to him, but not enough to rest in God's providence. He was a guy who was going to make sure he got his no matter what, and he was going to do it himself. Needless to say, Esau's furious when he finds out what's happened. He vows he's going to kill Jacob, and so Jacob has to flee for his life. And he and his mother decide the best thing to do would be to flee to where the family first came from so that he could find a wife and not have to take a wife from these, uh, these pagan Hittites or whoever they're living around at the time. Think Mississippi or that portion of Alabama that roots for the Crimson Tide. You want to marry someone in your own family in this culture. Now, it's, it's at some point on this journey that Jacob has a life-altering dream. It's, it's, it's out in the middle of nowhere running from certain death behind him to certain exploitation in front of him as he's, he's headed for this uncle who is going to use and abuse him for years. Consider the setting. This is the mama's boy, the homebody, who now finds himself sleeping on a rock under the stars in the middle of nowhere, far from the comforts of home. This is the promised child headed back to the, to, headed, headed out preparing to leave the promised land, maybe for good. And he's headed back to the very place that God had called his family from decades earlier. This is a guy who is leaving the realm of God's blessing in, in human terms. He's a guy between a rock and a hard place. As one, as one commentator put it, he's stuck between a death camp, if he was to stay where he was with Esau, and a hard labor camp where he's headed to work for his uncle. And ultimately, it's all his fault. It's his fault. This is where God meets him. Continuing the theme we've already traced through Abraham, and we could continue to trace throughout the rest of the Bible, we see God coming to meet the least likely person of all to build for himself a holy people. This guy isn't the firstborn. He's a scumbag to boot. And he makes that, I think that makes him the least likely person you'd ever want to use to found a nation. And that's precisely what God decides he's going to do. Now, the dream itself, the one that we've just read together from chapter 28, it symbolizes some sort of connection between heaven and earth. It's this ladder with angels going up and down and God standing over it or beside it. It's about a connection between heaven and earth. 
The point of the symbol, I think, comes out most clearly, though, in God's words to him. Because here, at this point where Jacob is hopeless and lost and it's all his fault, God speaks to him the exact same promises that he had spoken to his grandfather Abraham when Abraham found himself in a similar position. No hope for children, no home. He was a nomad. He was just moving around and God comes to him and says, I'm going to give you land and I'm going to give you descendants. Now he offers the same promises to Jacob. Now it's assume that Jacob is still going to continue on his journey out of the promised land. So perhaps the most important thing is the last promise that God gives him. He promises, I'm going to be with you. No matter where you go, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to bring you back. Promise to be with someone is much more than just a sort of bodily presence. It's to be for them. I'm going to be with you, with your interest. I'm going to make sure that you are blessed and secure. He promises he's going to be with Jacob. So to return to the question raised at the introduction, why would anybody describe their national founder like this? How did this deeply negative picture of Jacob make it into the history books? The reason is that Israel needed to know something foundational about God, first and foremost. That's what they need to know. God is always the initiator of salvation. He initiates not on the basis of any kind of fitness of character in the one who receives his promises, not based on the goodness of the object of his grace, but by sheer grace and grace alone. Paul's going to go on to cite this exact case in that mysterious passage in Romans 9 where he says, look, it proves that salvation is all of, of grace because, because God chose to give it to Jacob before he'd even done anything. He chose not to give it to Esau before he'd even done anything. It's all of God. In salvation history, God's working out here depends not on performance. It depends not on performance. Or Jacob is lost. It depends on promise. And that means it depends on the grace of the God who gives those promises to those who need them most. This messy portrait of Jacob paired, paired to this unsought meeting with God and his promises, what it does, the reason it's told in the story of Israel's founding is that it supplies a cornerstone of their identity and now the identity of the church as a people who are called out by God because of his gracious love and not because of their perfect obedience. In other words, it's a picture that's put here to prepare Israel to worship in the words of Psalm 130. When they sing, when they sing to God, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? They are singing to him based on the information they have from the stories of their, of their history. They are singing to him knowing that God would not allow Jacob to stand unless he was so full of grace that he would also extend that grace to me. It's to prepare them to sing the words of Psalm 103. Who pardons all your offenses? Who redeems your life from the pit? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. The Jacob story prepares Israel to worship and trust and to rest in a God who initiates radically and pursues those who want nothing to do with him. It's a story that prepares us for Jesus and for a salvation that's won for us and not by us. It's a story that's there to encourage Israel and us that in spite of our sin and our petty striving, our selfishness and our idolatry, all the things that we share with Jacob, God's grace cuts through that to our hearts in spite of who we are. 
It's the point of Ephesians chapter 2, which talks about all of us as dead in trespasses and sins, as ultimately children of wrath, just like everybody else. But God's mercy speaks into that while we're still sinners, and through his mercy brings us to faith in Christ. It's a story that prepares us for the initiative of God coming to us in our lowliness by his grace, nowhere more clearly shown than in Jesus, who is God made flesh, who is Emmanuel, God with us. So, what can we expect from God? The story answers that question. We can expect from God, we can expect God to be a God of grace who pursues relentlessly. So, there's another side of the story. One that gets at what God expects from us. So, if, if, if salvation comes all from God, how do we respond to him? And why does that matter? I think that the next meeting with God that Jacob has at Peniel has a lot to teach us in answer to this question. But in part because of what happens between now and then. We're told that Jacob responds to his dream with the fear of the Lord. That there's some actual faith there. He, he, he builds this sort of pillar using the rock that he had been sleeping on and anoints it. But I think that the details here and especially later in the story show he's still not fully connected with the fact that this is how God relates to him. And therefore, because salvation is all of God, he's got nothing to contribute. Jacob doesn't quite get it yet. We're told that he, even building this pillar, when he, when he speaks to God out of, uh, out of this dream... He, he makes this vow to him and makes all these conditions on the basis of this vow. He tells God, if you'll do these things, then you'll be my God. As if God's one of several options and Jacob is a discriminating shopper and he wants to make sure that, he's, that he gets what's coming to him. Yet again, it seems like, I don't think it's reading too much into this, to see Jacob as still working an angle, trying to make sure he gets what he, what he can out of the situation. He lists these conditions for God to meet and only then... Will he, bless, will he, will he uh, follow him with his life? Then, then after this, among Laban's household, this Laban is his uncle. He goes to him to get a wife, and he works for him to, to basically work off the debt of getting one of Laban's daughters and then two of Laban's daughters. He's exploited there, to be sure, by, by Laban. We've already mentioned that, but that's not the only part of that story. Jacob is giving as good as he gets. He's ripping Laban off in a couple different times. He's stealing, basically, a huge part of his herd by fixing the game. We don't have time to get into this story, but Jacob's craftiness does not take a break after this meeting with God. There's something that's still not quite there for him in his relationship. Jacob has been blessed by God during his time with Laban in Haran. He's got children. He's got possessions. But you get the sense that he's still not realized how dependent on God he actually is until, until, a dramatic encounter with his brother and ultimately with God himself. In this second vision, in chapter 32 of Genesis, Jacob comes to realize that a salvation that rests on all, all on God's promises comes to us only as we're broken of self-reliance. Now, let me set up this new scene. This new scene is about Jacob being broken of self-reliance once and for all. It's about faith as what God expects from us. So Jacob has left his father-in-law Laban, who's also his uncle. Again, not going there. Finally realizes he's got to return to the land that God had promised him. But, of course, that land is inhabited by his angry, head-hunting brother who's still there, waiting for vengeance. 
Jacob and his household reach the borders of the promised land. He sends out a, a messenger to sort of test the water, to stick his toe in and see what the temperature is like. They run into Esau, after all, and they find out that Esau is coming for him, and he's got 400 men with him. Jacob can read the handwriting on the wall. He's nothing if not smart and crafty. And they report back, there's no place for hope in their words. It's here that Jacob has run up against the limits of his creative and manipulative powers. Up, up to now, he's been at work in every situation we've seen him in to manipulate the circumstances to somehow gain control or power over his situation. And here, he's not fully done with that. When he finds out Esau is coming at him, he concocts some sort of scheme, but it's so weak. It just emphasizes how, how helpless he is. He decides, I'm going to send him this series of gifts. I'll send him some, some, of my, some of my flock or some of my possessions in waves, so hopefully it'll just soften him up kind of like body blows before he gets here, and he'll, he'll like me again. But come on. We all know what's happening here. These are things that Jacob has only because he's stolen the blessing that Esau des- deserved. So he's, he's basically giving Esau back things that belong ultimately to Esau. He's stolen his identity, and now he's trying to cut him a check. At this point, it's a drop in the bucket. Any gift that he could give to Esau is just a drop in the bucket compared to what he's done. And I think probably not, not a little bit insulting. At this point, he's stolen Esau's identity, and now he's playing Cousin Eddie to Esau's Clark Griswold. He's using Esau's credit card to try to buy him something real nice for Christmas, right? That's exactly what's happening here, and that's not going to fly. He's smart enough to see that that's not going to fly. At this point, for the first time in the story, Jacob prays, asking for God to deliver him. He prays to him, this is, this is back beyond where we actually read. Uh, back in uh, a few verses before verse 22, he prays to God, acknowledging that he is the God of his father Abraham. This is verse 9, the God of his father Isaac. And now he's calling on God, essentially, to be his God. He reminds God that he was the one who told him to come back. Now he's asking him to make good on the promises that he's made. But look at what he says in verse 10. And imagine, remember who Jacob is. Remember what we've already seen about how Jacob operates. And now read these words. He admits to God, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Jacob here, for the first time, asks God to make good on his covenant love. He appeals to him as the God of steadfast love, a a, a token word, a key word that triggers knowledge and thought of of the covenant that God has already made with his family. He acknowledges that he's not worthy of what he's already received, and he, he, he really just does hear what all true prayer represents. He cries out to God because he's at the limit. He has reached the place where he's got nothing left to offer. He's reached that place of an infant who cries out to her mother because she knows she dies if the mother decides not to deliver what she needs. Complete helplessness. This image of Jacob's brokenness, the one that we get in this prayer as he 
thinks of the death that may be waiting for him with Esau. This, this image of Jacob being purged finally of his self-reliance, I think that's what comes reinforced in this next scene, the one that, that we read together from chapter 32, beginning of verse 22. It's, it's one of the most mysterious scenes in all the Bible. It's another encounter with God. This time, the, scene com- the, the encounter with God comes in the form of a man and an all-night wrestling match. Now, full disclosure, there are a ton of things that we want to know about this passage. There are questions that we cannot read this text and not have burning in our minds. Who was this mysterious figure? Why is this person attacking Jacob? Why does this figure seem somehow unable to defeat Jacob, even though he could pop his hip out of socket just by touching it? Why does he refuse to reveal his name? And why, this, why does he decide to wound Jacob in the hip? There's so many, so many questions that if we were listening, if we had this storyteller sitting right here beside us, we would, be, we would be prying into their brain to know. But honestly, the Bible just doesn't go there. This provides us with another attempt to, to really call into to, to rein in the kind of curiosity that we come to the Bible with. Some of it is okay. Some of it is just a little bit arrogant that, de- that demands that the Bible submit itself to our questions and, our, and, and comes to us on our terms, answering the things we want it to answer. At some point, the Bible is just bigger than us, and if it doesn't go there, we just have to say, thanks be to God and amen. It's not a good one to, it's, it's, it's not a good feeling to run up against our limits as interpreters and understanders of the Bible, but this is one of those stories where we do on a lot of questions. Ultimately, though, I think that's just one of the things that makes the Bible brilliant. Like all great stories, it's not capturable in our limited terms. Its essence is, but its fringes aren't. Thankfully, the essence of this story is clear enough, and it reinforces the image of Jacob being, being broken of his self-reliance. And here's why we think that that's what's going on. It's, it's like uh, he, he receives this wound in his hip, and, and one commentator that I read said, it's like Jacob here wins this battle by losing it. It's like he wins the battle by losing the battle. Let's walk back through the story. Told from Jacob's perspective, Jacob is attacked by an unknown figure, and the storyteller doesn't give us any hints about who it is yet. He lets us get there over time. He just tells us this person, just bluntly says, Jacob was alone, and then he's attacked by a man. Though it appears to be going well at first, though Jacob seems to be struggling with him to some sort of stalemate, with a mere touch, this mysterious figure disables him completely. He puts his his hip out of socket. So what's left, what you can imagine, is Jacob just sort of got this guy around the neck, hanging on for dear life. He obviously can't really walk. He's not using any leverage in his legs to try to defeat this guy, but he is not letting go. Because if there's anything Jacob knows how to do, it's how to read a situation. And, if, and now that he has been disabled by simply being touched by this guy, he knows this whoever it is is someone who's got power enough to bless me and preserve me, even though I'm facing a brother who's hunting for my head. Jacob knows what the situation means. So he holds on for dear life. You could think of Jacob as bringing this guy into submission, but I think the other, I think the real look is Jacob as desperate, in, in desperation, just holding on for dear life, knowing he dies if he doesn't have what this figure can give to him. He's completely broken of self-reliance. Ultimately, the, the breaking of his hip socket, the limp that he carries, is just a symbol of the deeper inner brokenness that Jacob has. And and. That shows itself most clearly at the turning point of this narrative. 
Because in the middle of the fight, where Jacob has been disabled and he's just hanging on for dear life and he's demanding to be blessed, his assailant asks him, what is your name? And Jacob answers, my name is Jacob. It's not just a nice name. A lot of us use that name. It's a great name. But at that time, for Jacob, what that name meant was owning up to all the sordid identity that we have seen play out in these stories one by one. Jacob confesses to his assailant that, who, who am I, you ask? I am a cheater. I am a weasel, a scumbag, one who doesn't deserve anything that he has but has swindled it from people. I am Jacob. But it's at this point, at the point where he owns up to his own weakness and brokenness, that this person who comes to be identified somehow mysteriously with God and God's authority changes this broken man and gives him a new name. The one who was Jacob, the one who was Cheater, is now called Israel, the father of a great nation. Jacob limps away from the battle. It's a physical symbol of the deeper brokenness, but he limps towards his brother now not afraid of his death, confident of what can be had when you don't rely not on yourself, but on the grace of God. That's why when he encounters Esau and Esau and he are reconciled, he moves straight on from that account, straight to build an altar to God. In this case, this, the, the story goes on to tell, he goes back into the promised land to a place called Shechem where his grandfather Abraham had built an altar. He builds an altar, and now there's no more conditions Now he simply says to God, you are the God of Israel. He moves, he builds an altar, and he worships not the God of Abraham and Isaac, but the God of Israel, his own God. The point, overall, is the same one made again and again by the prophets, by the authors of the New Testament, that that God's new kingdom, the kingdom that God has come to build, is a kingdom in which the weak, the broken, the lame, the poor, the blind, the widow, and the orphan come in first. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us, belongs to the poor in spirit. It doesn't belong to those who are crafty enough to work every situation for their own good. It belongs to those who share the limp of Jacob. God's got to break self-sufficiency before we can inherit his promises to us. That's that's why he is so consistently described as a friend to the poor, as near to the brokenhearted, as exalting the humble and destroying the proud. It's because the broken are those who really see their need for him. God's act of salvation is always and only all of grace, but this right here, Jacob's limping away from this encounter, this is what it looks like for us to receive the grace that's offered to us by God. It always looks like limping, and we've got to embrace that pain. So, if you're broken down by your sin, if you've come in this morning and you recognize, perhaps through some sort of fight that you've had with a loved one this morning or this weekend, I don't know, perhaps through just recognizing that you, you, there's something you've been, tr- some habit you've been trying to kick and you just can't kick it and you feel powerless to it. Maybe it's struggle that you're going through in your marriage. Who knows? If you're, if you're deeply aware this morning of your own sin, you need to know that that place of brokenness, that place is the place of faith. 
Faith in Jesus is not separable from any sort of clear-eyed view of our sin. We have to be able to see who we really are apart from him. We have to, with Jacob, own up to our identity as those who cheat and steal, as those who lie, as those who break all of the things that God has called for us to do. We have to own up to the fact that we don't even meet the standards that we set up for other people that we expect from others. We fail, in other words, our own standards. That's where our conscience hits us hard. We've got to realize that before we'll ever come to him. If you're convicted by your sin, if you're weighed down by guilt and shame, then you need to know that's not something to hide. It's not something to accept as if it's okay. That's not good either. It's something to accept as who you are and therefore be prepared to receive Jesus as the solution that your sin needs. Because ultimately, the promises that were made to Jacob promises of a new people and place to rest in security and harmony with God, those are promises that Jesus fulfills as the one who comes to wipe clean a people who otherwise could not endure the presence of a holy God. The promises made to you in Jesus is that he's done it so you don't have to. Just like God has preserved the life of Jacob through brokenness, your conviction of your sin is a good thing. Embrace it and move through it to Jesus as your only hope. But sometimes... I think maybe most times, the effects of sin don't show themselves so clearly as laws that are broken, as, as something that, that, uh, that, that's obvious that we've done, that, that God has said not to do, and we do it. More often than not, especially for those of us who are sort of well-acculturated in the Christian community, our sin shows itself behind false sources of trust and security. And just like with Jacob... Brokenness is the only path past those sources, past self-reliance, and into full-orbed confidence in Jesus. Jacob's faith in God after the account we've read, the, the promises that he rested in were filled out later and fulfilled in Christ, and they're open to all of us who embrace them as Jacob did. But we have to embrace them with brokenness. So I think the real question is, are you ready to walk through the pain that it's going to take to get you reliant on God? Because ultimately, what we see in Jacob is simply a symbol, the brokenness of his body that reminds him of his reliance on God is, is worked out much more deeply in us and our souls. The call to Christianity is not a call to perfect and unbroken happiness, to call to the fulfillment of all the things you've ever wanted in your life. The call to Christianity is a call to take up the cross, but also to be broken by God as he wins you to himself by destroying anything else that you might rest on. It's a call to embrace pain as a way of life, as a way of shedding an old set of skin and taking on a new one. It looks like the brokenness of Jacob. I have come to experience that myself in a way that I never had a couple of years ago. Some of you walked th- with me through this. This will be a familiar story to you. But as I, was, as I was thinking about how can we drive this in, there's just no way that I can know where each of you are resting falsely. I, I assume that all of us have things that we replace Jesus with as a sort of leg to stand on. And, and, and I'm telling you, you need to embrace the breaking, the shattering of that leg. But I don't know what it is. All I can do is tell you what mine was most recently, most vividly, and hopefully... Jesus can speak to you where you need to be broken. Two years ago, roughly, I was winding down my graduate school career, I thought. I was trying very hard to finish my dissertation 
in a time frame that was very ambitious. And in hindsight, I had way too much bound up in being able to complete graduate school on that timeline. I had really busted it to try to finish the dissertation in four years total. And, and at the end of the, the summer, at the end of my fourth year, I was done with the draft, and I liked it, sort of. I had, I had the same kind of doubts that I've always had about my work, and all of us know what that feels like. But I thought that I was there and sent it in, and I remember celebrating over it and, and looking ahead to life without that noose around my neck. What I didn't realize yet is that I thought that I mattered because I was able, not because I was the smartest person in my program, it was clear to me that I wasn't. Not because my dissertation was breaking a lot of great new ground, it was painfully clear to me that that wasn't true. But I thought what I have, what I do have, is I finished, and I finished quick because I didn't mess around. That had always been something that I was proud of, I think, through every phase of my academic career, I was always pushing hard, trying to get done as quickly as possible. And, and looking back, I felt like I mattered not just because God had decided that Jesus should die so that I could be his child. That wasn't why I mattered. It was that plus being able to accomplish this goal that I had set for myself on the timeline that I would set it for. And, and soon after I, I turned this thing in, I begin to see cracks in the armor. I get some feedback from one of my advisors telling me, here's some things that need to be changed. And, you know, when, you're, when, when you've just gotten something off of your shoulders, even if the changes are reasonable and not that huge, they hit you like a ton of bricks. But then what happened was I got a word from my advisor that he thought we had found a dissertation 50 years old that said basically the same thing that mine did. For those of you who've never been to graduate school, have no interest in it, let me just tell you that that is the worst thing you can possibly hear. Because there's all this angst wrapped up in being someone who, who matters because you've said something that's a contribution to the field. The thing that justifies years of work is having some little thing that you say that no one else has ever said. And so you carry it around like, like, uh, like some sort of weight. It is like a noose almost. And you're always anxious about it. Is it creative enough? Does it matter enough? Is it going to get me where I need to, need to take me? I was, I was already self-conscious about it. And then to be, to be told that maybe there's a dissertation out there that, that scoops mine and that maybe that means I've got to rewrite the thing substantially. It was a breaking point for me. I spiraled into a depression like I have never had before. I've never been one that that, that comes naturally to. Uh, but for a couple of months there, it was unlike anything I had ever experienced. But one of the most important, I think one of, the, one of the best instances of God's grace in my life ever is that within a week or two of realizing this, this thing that seemed like a tragedy to me, I was also shown to him clearly, almost like I had a new set of glasses put on, that what he was purging me of was a deep sense of idolatry in my own heart, that I was resting for significance, for value. I wanted, to, I wanted the, the approval of others, and I was finding it in this this thing that was not Jesus. What he showed me through it, even though, the, even though the darkness was so, so thick for those two months, even though I couldn't really see what it was going to look like to come out the other side, what he was showing me in that time was that if I was going to come out the other side, I was going to come out as a broken and somewhat purged man. I was going to come out as one who now knows from experience that these things that promise you significance are empty, that the thing you're standing on is just shifting sand, 
That the only thing that lasts in this blip on a radar of a life that each of us live is things that are, that, 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 that are eternal because they're rooted in a sacrifice that is made by one who lives. And we're united to him. I tell you this simply because, I, and again, I can't imagine specifically where you're going to need to be broken. But I can tell you that if you're resting on something like that, and, and, and that's where you're finding value and meaning, significance, hope, that's where you think that you matter, God's going to have to break you if you're going to survive as his child. God will have to break you like he broke Jacob. So this, the story of Jacob, the story of the gospel is a call to pain. But it's a call to the pain that purges and that leaves you reliant on Jesus in a way that takes away fear, in a way that won't pass when your circumstances shift. The call of the gospel is the call to share the faith of Jacob, a broken man, changed by the relentless pursuit of God's grace. Will you pray with me? God, will you make it so for us? Will you prepare us to suffer, to be broken, to embrace whatever measures are necessary to leave us more fully resting on Jesus? Would you take away everything else but him and make us happy? Make us happy because he is ours and we are his. Would you help us to pray with full hearts that are untainted by self-reliance to pray for the brokenness that leads to faith? We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.